Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. It's Monday, December 3rd, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. It's December, and everyone's probably really busy with all of their holiday engagements. Here at Inquiring Minds, Adam Isaac and I have also been busy preparing the next season of our other podcast, Cadence, What Music Tells Us About the Mind. We hope to launch season three about how music influences us sometime in the next few weeks. And as we've been gathering the interviews, I was reminded of an interview that we did last year that we couldn't actually air in its full on the podcast because of its length. And that made me really sad. So I wanted to give our listeners here on Inquiring Minds a chance to hear the voice of the wonderful Conchetta Tamino. She's a music therapist, and we both shared a friend in Dr. Oliver Sacks. Conchetta is a pioneer in the field of music therapy, especially focusing in on individuals who suffered from the effects of stroke or other brain trauma, or who have degenerative neurological diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. She is the executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. And she's the Senior Vice President for Music Therapy at Center Light Health System. Center Light used to be called Beth Abraham Family of Health Services, and that's where she met Dr. Oliver Sachs. What do a South African female DJ, a Wall Street businessman turned mixologist, and one of the fastest men alive all have in common? They all dared to push themselves and chase their dreams and make them into their own victories. This holiday season, G.H. Mum Champagne has partnered with Vice to showcase these amazing stories of personal triumph. So pop open a bottle of G.H. Mum Grand Cordon, get inspired, and celebrate your next victory. Hey, you never know, maybe next year your story will be featured. Visit hmumvictory.com. That's H-M-U-M-M-V-I-C-T-O-R-Y dot com to see all 10 stories. This episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. In 2013, Amy Errett founded Madison Reed, and she named it after her daughter because her company is on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair, and she wanted her daughter to be a part of that new force. For decades, women have had two options, 
outdated at-home hair color, or the time and expense of a salon. So Amy created Madison Reed because she believes that women deserve better than the status quo. Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color, but the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color in an ammonia-free formula with ingredients that you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from a salon, but you'll have a little secret. You had more me time to do what you really love. Experience beautiful, multidimensional hair color made in Italy delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and loved Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Madison Reed would like to honor Inquiring Minds listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code MINDS. That's code M-I-N-D-S. Dr. Tamino, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, my pleasure to be here. So can you tell me a little bit about how you first got into music therapy? Sure. Well, you know, I was a pre-med student when I was in college, uh, sort of a science geek. Uh, I also played trumpet. And while I was in college, uh, ended up double majoring in music and in science, um, became very, very interested in in music, not so much as a performing art, but um, in understanding how music affects us. And it wasn't until my junior year in college that I found out about the field of music therapy. Now, this was back in 1974, so the field was still fairly new. And I learned that there was a master's program at New York University. My first clinical internship was at a nursing home in Brooklyn, uh, where I was assigned to work with people with end stages of dementia. And it was with that group of people who were deemed to be unresponsive, unaware of the environment, totally detached from reality. Most of them, I was told literally that they had no brains left. I was asked to play music for them. And it was in their responses, their amazing immediate responses to music, that I became interested in what was it about music that could reach people who were deemed unreachable. And that was in 1978. And it started me on this journey of trying to understand what it was about music, what it was about music and the brain. What do we know about music and the brain? How can music inform function in people who have lost it? And then I met Oliver Sacks in 1980 when I came to Beth Abraham. And what happened when you met uh, Oliver Sacks? Well, you know, he had already uh, had worked with a woman, Kitty Stiles, who was the music specialist, music therapist, uh, at Beth Abraham during the awakenings time. And it was in her work that he saw the total reanimation um, of the people with the post-encephalitic Parkinson's disease. So when he, when Kitty retired and I uh, came, came there, uh, he immediately wrote to me and said, we have to meet, you know, welcome to, to Beth Abraham. I told him about my experience with Alzheimer's disease. It wasn't something he had seen or thought about at that point. And he told me about his experience with motor function and rhythm. And immediately we started to ask each other questions and became very close friends and worked together for 35 years. Tell me a little bit about um, sort of what 
these these kinds of patients who, as as you described, seemed un, you know unresponsive and and completely detached from the world. Can you give us a, a little bit more of a description of what their lives are like? You know, what are they? Do they all suffer from Alzheimer's disease, or is it different types of neurodegenerative disorders? So, give us a bit of a background on sure. sort of where we're be, where you began with those patients. Sure. Well, you, there's such a broad range when somebody has cognitive deficits. It could be anything from uh, short-term memory loss to attention problems, to really progressed uh, end stages of Alzheimer's disease. So there's a whole spectrum of where the difficulties and challenges can be. So I've worked with everybody from early, early stages, first diagnoses of, of memory problems, using music as a mnemonic device to help them remember um, phrases, phone numbers, people's names. Uh, just the way you would use a melody to remember a telephone number in the in the commercial jingle. So strategies along those lines, as well as building up attention, and uh, they're being able to follow and and hold attention for a longer period of time. And that may look like a musical improvisation with drums and different rhythmic patterns for them to copy, or a fill in the blank song where certain words are prompted, but they have to fill in the immediately following word. So strategic games like that, that use music to cue the types of responses that would help reinforce and stimulate and enhance their short-term memory function. So in early stages, that would typically be the way the intervention would be presented. Um, But then as the disease progresses and the person uh, loses other types of functioning uh, the importance of connecting to other people, uh, being able to express themselves, um, make choices, are all things that start to become compromised. But within a music-based experience, the music can inform some of the meaning in those actions. So, for example, um, a couple sharing the favorite song with each other, even though this, the person with Alzheimer's or dementia doesn't recognize their spouse anymore. They do recognize the relationship in the context of listening to the music. So it's using then the earlier um, associations with music that is personally important to them that preserves some of those emotional relation uh, connections, the relational connections as well. That's still very much preserved, um, but not easily accessed outside of the music. Yeah, that's so fascinating to me. And I think probably for anyone who's seen the movie Alive Inside or watched videos of, you know, patients like Henry, who's one of the um, individuals featured in that film, sort of, you know, come alive. And when you when you first meet them, it it just really seems like they they're unresponsive, as you say, they they, they just you can't connect with them. Um, And then all of a sudden, they come alive with music. You know, I I, it. I think it has a lot to do, and I, I know this has been studied to some degree, but I can't uh, immediately uh, refer to a specific research study. But when a person has cognitive deficits and even some other types of neurologic diseases, they can't call to mind the specific information. The information is there, uh, so they need something to prime the response to prime the neurologic response. So whether that priming is keywords, whether that priming is an emotion, uh, whether that priming is a relationship, those types of very strongly stored 
uh, factors do help that person then release those responses. So tell us a little bit about what you think it is about music that seems um, effective. And, and you know, do, do you think of it as, as more effective than other kinds of interventions? Is that what you've seen? Or is it just one more tool in a larger toolbox? No, I, I, I think I can speak from 40 years of experience that music is one of the strongest tools that we can use. Not just listening to music, a live insight uh, refers to a personalized playlist, but at the very end stages of this, of interacting with somebody musically um, informs movement and personal connection and essential relationships that are still very much preserved up until the very end. So I think music um, encapsulates, when we talk about music, obviously we're talking about more than just a song. We're talking about rhythm. We're talking about harmonies. We're talking about vibration. We're talking about emotions and feelings and, and historical memory. So because the neurologic processing of a familiar song involves so, so much territory in the brain. Um, if a person has a deficit, there's a pretty good chance that we're going to be able to touch something that's still functional. And through that touching and stimulation and activation are able to recruit related networks into action again. And I think that's what music does that visual cues don't do that just uh, basic emotional cues don't do. Music encapsulates all of those at one time and can override some of the deficits because of the redundancy of the information that's presented within the music itself. And I think you've touched on something that's really fascinating to me, which is this, you know, a lot of people think of, you know, memories or are, are things that are stored in our brains. And um, when we need them, we go and get them. Um, but in fact, as we've learned more and more about how memory actually works, a major a sort of component of memory is the reconstruction aspect of it. So, you know, retrieving the memory is just as important as the storage of the memory and getting to it. And, you know, and so so this was what fascinates me about what you've just said is that is that sometimes, you know, we see an individual with Alzheimer's disease or, you know, another kind of dementia that is involved uh, in, in memory. And we know that the regions of the brain in which those memories are stored are at least, you know, somewhat affected by disease. And yet, do you think that music can sort of bypass a regular circuit and get at those uh, regions of the brain or at those stored memories? Or do you think it's just that it accesses parts of memories that have been represented in other unaffected areas? I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think of it as, uh, you know, those visual illusion tests where, or even some auditory illusions where pieces are missing, but your brain just sub um, fills in the missing information without us really thinking about it because the brain tends to consolidate things and be very um, uh, effective in its use of territory, so to speak. So I think when somebody has dementia or when somebody has a cognitive loss, it's not so much the reason why they can't piece it all back themselves is because those gaps are there. But if enough related information is presented, the whole, the t totality of that um, experience comes back. Yeah. It's like those pictures of like a Dalmatian in the snow. And if you don't know that there's a Dalmatian there, you can't see it. But the minute you see the Dalmatian, you can't unsee it. 
Exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I, th- really I think we're working along those, those lines. And then um, another thing that's uh, become very interesting within neuroscience right now, from the work of Charles Lim, uh, the idea that when people, well, he's, he studied uh, jazz musicians looking at this type of lack of self-monitoring and um, hyperactive, uh, the changes in, in the amygdala where uh, one part is turned off, the other part is turned on, the part that's turned on is the part that's um, allowing this flow state to take place. So when the person no longer, when the person is worse than Henry in Alive Insights, when when even the song itself can't call to mind an, an association or a remembrance, um, actively engaging somebody in a musical exchange also opens up this gateway to connections and relationship. And I think at that point, it's because they're not trying to think or they can't think, um, but it's activating these subcortical areas that are still very much preserved and then can then stimulate some of the intact areas that can inform the recall. So that seems like a different, you know, a different mechanism. When I think about, you know, the kinds of um, stories that 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 were told in Alive Inside or, you know, the sort of the 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 canonical, you know, playing music from someone's adolescence or early 20s, you know, brings them back to that era and sort of have them wake up. It's, it sounds like what you're saying in the second case is, is, is almost a different mechanism of music because that the music doesn't have to be necessarily familiar. Is that is that right? Can you? Right. That's yeah. So. There's many levels at which music can touch somebody. And in music therapy, we're we're trained to look at where the gaps are and what's going to inform function and connection. So we're talking about two different approaches in what I I just said. One is where um, we're looking at a, a way of connecting to the person in a certain time and place, so using autobiographical music to um, connect emotionally, connect personally. But there's another type, another intervention that wants to disinhibit uh, function or disinhibit some of the blocks to function that happen with people with cognitive deficits. And the active engagement, exchanging music back and forth, uh, where the person is no longer thinking about what they're doing, they're just playing and following, not even following, they're interacting uh, in the musical in the musical context, um, that type of interaction then allows for this flow of response that I think I don't know if this has been studied, but I believe it's activating some of those preserved networks as well. So you know, in the one case, you essentially are, are co-listening or listening together, or you know, uh, listening to recorded music or even you know live music. But in the second case, it has to be live music. It ha- is is that is that right? That's correct. That's exactly correct. Yes. And that's why that's why I know we're talking about adults with, with Alzheimer's disease or people with Alzheimer's disease, but that's why music therapy um, with children who are pre-language or, or music therapy with somebody who's had a traumatic brain injury is so effective when it's live and interactive because it's in that context that the functionality of the individual is seen and can be really uh, reinforced through the music therapist inter- intervention at that moment. So speaking of that kind of live interaction, um, what are the kind of uh, uh, sort of 
features of that music that music therapists have found most effective? I mean, does it have to have a melody, a particular rhythm? Is there, you know, an instrument that is, is effective? What are some of, some of the parameters that, that make it more or less effective? Yeah, um, that could be a, a wide range as well. I think the sounds that, uh, that are comfortable to the individual, uh, people with Alzheimer's disease do have, sometimes they may have a temporal lobe dementia, which also affects their perception of sound. So the actual uh, pitch of sound may be different. Uh, the, the harshness of a drum may be too um, coarse for them. Um, and so we have to be careful in the types of sound. So what we'll do is have a variety of instruments for the person to play with and see which sound they gravitate to. And then use that instrument as a way of drawing them into the, in, to the interaction at a deeper level with the hopes that we can unfold some of their self-expression. Uh, usually in those contexts when the person is really involved in playing with the therapist, we hear verbal expression from a person who may be um, at this point nonverbal, uh, different types of sounds. Sometimes it's a, it's a cathartic release of, of frustration and anger and, and hardship of things that they couldn't express verbally because of their advanced dementia. So being able to support those feelings and that self-expression in a soundscape that is comfortable to the individual is really what we're trying to do. And that's really fascinating that, you know, music can serve as a way of allowing us to release pent up emotions. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that and, and, you know, how that might be useful for, for patients who, who probably, you know, I think what, for me, one of the things that is really hard to think about in these kinds of patients is that these are, these are people who are adults who were, you know, who went through life being in control and making their own decisions. Um, and now that sort of has been stripped away from them, which, which must be really hard. Right. And, and in fact, in fact, one of the um, really challenging things with caring for somebody who has dementia is the types of behaviors that they exhibit because they are so frustrated or they're uncomfortable. And, and unfortunately, those behaviors are usually treated with some kind of psychotropic medication, which further regresses the ability to interact with the world around them. And so by allowing uh, a gateway to expression that is um, appropriate for their age, (laughs) that is self-affirming, that is comforting to them, um, and allows for the full scope of their expression is something that music therapy can provide where um, medication can't. And so we've been advocating for this for quite some time to make live interactive music therapy a core part of of dementia care for people who are institutionalized. So from the perspective of a musician, do you have any insights of sort of why it's effective in this context? Uh, in regard to a musician, um, a yeah, musician like, like, with dementia like what is it de- about music? Yeah, yeah. Either, either about you know, in this sort of pent up release of emotion, and and sort of you know, sort of specifically what we what we've just been talking about, um, but also sort of just you know more generally. So we can di- we can divide that question up into two parts. So maybe we'll start with you know why why does music you know allow us to express our emotions? Do we do we know that the answer to that? You know, it, it's, I don't know if that's been fully explored either. Um, I know, I, I, I'm not an eloquent 
speaker. You know, I spent so much time with Oliver that many times I didn't even open my mouth <laughs> to speak because his command of, of words was so wonderful. Um, I think many times when we have very deep emotions, it's very hard to find the words that fully reflect the depths of our feelings. And, and sometimes we're very protective of uh, what those words are or how those words are expressed. But when you share a musical expression or allowed to, um, I don't want to say vent, but allowed to uh, explore those feelings non-verbally, then a fuller spectrum of, of feelings are exhibited. Even if somebody if somebody is very frightened and isn't able to uh, make a make a loud sound, for example, somebody who's very inhibited, who's been who wants to be polite and correct, the music therapist may actually encourage them through subtle changes in the rhythms and music to be more expressive. And as the person becomes more expressive, they find that they. Uh, have a flood of feelings that they've been holding back. So these subtle changes in the musical interaction can bring forth deeper emotions that the person isn't even willing to express. What about the memory aspect? I mean, you know, we can say, well, you know, music has has so many uh, components to it, so it's represented in multiple ways in the brain. Then there's this redundancy. Um, but is that is that the whole story, or do you think that there's something else about music, you know, that that is so effective at, at helping us retrieve our memories. The one part of music, I guess the part that I've looked at the most because of my, my work early on with people with Alzheimer's disease is the how music is associated with key, key times in our life. And because we constantly are not constantly, but we tend to, as we grow older, to go back to those times, those periods, uh, reflect on meaningful events in our, our lives. Um, those feelings and those emotion, those feelings, the emotions, the the visual um, memories, the people we were with, all of those become integrally part of the music itself. And I I think we tend to use m music more than visual images um, to represent specific times in our lives and specific events in our lives. And those become richly ingrained as well. And I think that's why music is the go-to um, element when people are trying to connect with feelings or try to remember, you know, remember a time and place. It's why when people uh, leave their countries, um, they hold on to the folk music of their their countries as well. It's it's that personal connection to something that's so well represented in the music. I think scientifically, with you know, with neuroscientists are looking at, at those how quickly those associations are made and how deeply those are made. So I'd be curious about about that too, is how those all get encoded and at what levels. Yeah, it kind of brings to mind, you know, when when you're growing up and you every summer has a different soundtrack, you know, we, we used to create sort of these mixtapes, uh, which I, you know, I'm totally dating myself now, uh, every summer. And so that would be the summer soundtrack. And then, you, you know, you'd listen to it during the year to remind you of the great times you had in the summer. And then the next summer, there'd be a whole new soundtrack. Yeah, you know, and what I find really interesting is how some of the songs seep in, even if we're not paying attention to them. For example, when I really didn't, I thought I didn't listen to rock, a lot of rock music when I was a teenager. But if I hear those songs now, somehow I know the words to all of them. So, so somehow, somehow 
maybe it's just the environment. Who knows? Uh, I don't know if that's been studied. It's how those those memories get encoded, even if we not consciously paying attention to them. So you know, we we sort of um, now know the uh, the effectiveness that music can have uh, in in patients, especially those who um, you know have suffer are suffering from neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, and yet it's still hard to implement these interventions widely in you know nursing home settings so can you tell us a little bit about the challenges of you know why 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 isn't music ubiquitous in in nursing homes you know it it, it is challenging um because there's a cost involved uh music therapists are trained to be therapists and Unfortunately, insurance in most states doesn't cover it. It's not covered on the Medicaid. Uh, It is covered on the behavioral help for um, in Medicare Part B in in many states. Um, So I think the challenge is educating administrators that music therapy isn't the entertainer coming in and doing a sing-along that it has... uh, a lot more uh, therapeutic focus and uh, can have tremendous benefit to their clients. Um, There's been a lot of movement within the Music and Memory Foundation, that's the Alive Inside uh, program that that Dan Cohen initiated. Uh, That program now is worldwide. Many nursing homes have trained their staff to, to be able to provide music playlists and the role that music therapists are playing in this in this um, program is to advise uh, and consult with agencies to make sure that their staff is able to choose uh, the the best or the most effective music for their clients. Um, so I think there's still a lot of education that has to happen. Uh, institutions need to be uh, need to learn that this can be a cost benefit to them if they have residents who have behavioral issues, if they're dealing with reducing psychotropic meds, they're having a music therapist on staff who can not only work one-to-one with their most difficult patients, but also help the recreation staff and the nursing staff with things like uh, using the right music for pain management, for even coordinating some of the um, art, artists who come in and, and do some of the therapeutic programs to make those more effective. So I think if administrators really want to have an impact on patient care, having the music therapist as part of their team, as a full-time paid member of their team, would be um, more cost-effective in the long run because of the impact on generalized care. Yeah, so I mean, that's one thing that um, I sort of worked a little bit with this one uh organization down in Texas called Music is Our Weapon. And their goal is to, you know, bring music a la, you know, Dan Cohen to all kinds of places where people don't have control over their surroundings. So whether that's, you know, battered women's shelters or nursing homes or so forth. Um, And, you know, and they've and they've become they've been very innovative in terms of working with um, Spotify and, you know, trying to solve some of the practical problems of, you know, um, bringing music to these people. Um, but one of the things that we've kind of struggled is trying to find uh, measurable outcomes <laughs> that we can, you know, demonstrate effectiveness. And, you know, so, so what do you think are sort of the, the best measurable outcomes that, you know, and, and are there some that you wish you could study, but, you know, ha- we haven't yet? Right. So 
we one as a researcher, you know, one of the challenging things is always to have a to control the variables. Well, we can't really control the type of music that's going to work, but we, what we can do is look at impacts that can be measured through existing tools. So we can measure behavioral changes. We can measure hospitalizations. We can measure reduction in pharmacological treatments. So I think instead of trying to look at what music works, uh, looking at the impact of a a very thoughtful music therapy intervention where the music is going to be different depending on the individuals involved, uh, knowing that the music will be selected because of of, uh, certain parameters of, of personal relationship to the music and it's, you know, whatever the, the categories are, but that those p- participants in that program will show a change in behavior, will show a change in attention, or will show a change in their ability to recognize others. So there are standardized tools that can be used. I think it's a matter of getting the right funding to do large enough sample sizes that we can show impact. And I, I believe that the time is now because NIH is very interested in, in music and health and, and music therapy and its impact on a whole range of, of health ish, health-related issues. So if if people are interested in researching this, this is the time to put together a consortium to actually answer those questions. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. You know, in the last year or so, year and a half or so, um, it's been a it's been a huge boon. Uh, hopefully, they will put their money where their mouth is <laughs> um, and fund a lot of these projects. Yeah, no, right. they're, they're posting it, so it, it really is. This is the time, awesome. and there's enough science. And you know, in the uh, injury that that there is, this is the time because neuroscience is at the point that it can tell us. Uh, or show us some of the areas where this is effect- is effective and arousing very specific responses. So we know we you know, Oliver and I tried to get neuroscientists to study this back in 1980, and they said it's impossible. You can't study music; it's too complex. The brain is too complex. We don't understand. But now we are. Now we are being able to pinpoint things like attention and and emotional responses and and disinhibition. So uh, we have those parameters already mocked and we can start making uh, comparisons to other types of behaviors and responses. So what about um, loved ones or caregivers of, of patients? Like what, what can they do? Let's say you have a, you know, a loved one in a nursing home and, and for some reason there's no music therapist or, you know, it's hard to, to get it or even to supplement um, what the music therapists there are doing. Um, what can they do? The thing is, is really to, before the, when the person's first diagnosed or, or even now, but you know, every, all of us should have our playlist and we should have the play, the playlist for when we want to relax and the playlist for when uh, we want to be active and move around. So uh, given that, that those playlists are available, couples, family members should really think about the music that is the, that represents them the most as a family, as a, as a, a group of people, um, and use that music when they're visiting. So if they have a loved one who is, um, I don't want to say minim- minimally responsible, but somebody who's hard to relate to because they're not talking as much or they forget a lot, and it's very hard for the caregiver uh, to spend time with that individual, sharing music, listening to music together, holding hands, moving to the music, 
are all things that work really well. Um, and it allows the person with dementia to feel connected. And even if, even if they're not saying words that their loved one um, understands, that they should know that on a very deep level, the individual with dementia actually does have a sense of recognition and connection. And that type of intimacy is possible when that music is shared together. Which, of course, is is really the the in some ways the biggest tragedy of having a loved one with a neurodegenerative disease because slowly you lose that connection and and even though the person's body is still there, you know their mind is 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 fading away and so that's this is one way of you know capturing a little bit of 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 that person again. Right, exactly, and the the feelings are still there, and and I would like to believe that on a very deep level, rec- recognition is there. It may not be recognition in the way that we would think of it, but the sense of knowing on a very deep level, I believe, is still there. So what do you hope in the in the next 20 years changes in terms of, um, you know, the, the kind of work that you're doing or the, or the work that we're bringing or, or you know, music coming in into these and other settings? What, what, are, you, what are you most hopeful about? Well, first, there's, there's several things. I think we're really at this amazing time where people are understanding that that music can affect us. Um, well, we know that music does affect us, but but that music therapy, that the use of music in the therapeutic context has many applications and is incredibly beneficial. So I think what's going to happen is, and we're seeing it already where the number of universities offering music therapy programs has, has um, increased by by ten so far in the past two years. Um, the amount of the number of music therapists being certified has increased by thousands in the past few years, and music therapists and people teams of uh, healthcare providers working together to understand how music can be used therapeutically has also expanded. So um, what I hope is going to happen is that we'll see teams of people uh, who were informed by music therapists being able to carry out therapeutic music interventions that could benefit people with dementia, uh, both in home care, in early stages of care, uh, to enhance not only their quality of life, but their quality of function and interaction. With others, I see the field expanding uh, tremendously around the world, um, with thousands of people, like I mentioned, being certified in the near future. Well, Dr. Tomino, thank you so much for uh, being on our podcast. Oh, my pleasure! It was fun. So that's it for another episode. I hope that you'll check out Cadence Season 3 coming out in the next few weeks. And if you haven't yet, please do catch up on the first two seasons. They're available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our new Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihalla, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds where you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like, like maybe your favorite holiday music, to contact at inquiring.show. 
Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and our music is supported by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. I'm your host today, Indre Viscontis. Have a great week. Ever wonder what your life would be like if you took a different path? Are you doing today what you envisioned you'd be doing 10 years ago? This holiday season, GH Mum Champagne has partnered with Vice to bring you personal stories of courage, belief in your dreams, and the determination to make those dreams a reality. So pop open a bottle of GH Mum Grand Cordon, get inspired, and celebrate your next victory. Visit hmumvictory.com. That's H-M-U-M-M-V-I-C-T-O-R-Y.com to see all 10 stories. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.